So, just like Todd said, uh, last week we began in the Old Testament, right, with the mission of God and a biblical theology of missions in the Old Testament. And really, we anchored last week's material um, in Genesis chapter 12, just like Todd said, God comes to this guy named Abram. Bible tells us that he's 75 years old when God interrupts his life and his agenda, commands him to leave his land and his loved ones, doesn't tell him where he's going or how long he's staying. But then God also goes on to promise him that he's going to make him into a great nation. He's going to bless him. He's going to make his name great. And Abraham is actually going to be a blessing to all peoples. And so God is blessing Abraham in order that he might be a blessing, right? The blessing is coming to Abraham because God is intending to move it through Abraham. And we know that the ultimate blessing that God's talking about in Genesis 12, 1 through 3 is not the land, it's not descendants, it's not material blessings. All of those temporal blessings are eventually going to come to Abraham and his descendants, but that the ultimate blessing that God is talking about in Genesis 12, 1 through 3 is what, you guys? Jesus, thank you, right? The gospel, right? We know that God is preaching the gospel to Abraham in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, because Paul tells us over in Galatians 3, 8. And so Genesis 12, 1 through 3 is not the first time that we see the gospel preached. The first time we get it is in Genesis 3, 15, But in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, we get a fuller expression of the gospel and who that includes. And so who does it include? God is blessing Abraham to be a blessing. And who's the blessing for? All peoples, all tribes, all tongues, all languages, all families. So depending on what translation of the Bible you read, um, that's who the blessing is for. And then what we did was, just like Todd said, uh, we walked through the Old Testament. And really, last week's talk or sermon or whatever we want to call it, Um, was grounded in Abraham 12, but all of these other passages that come after that that we took a look at were merely supporting passages, right? So all of these examples, all of these Old Testament stories, we see God working to fulfill his purpose through his promise, right? That That was the main theme of last week's talk. God's fulfilling his purpose through his promise, And he's doing it through all of these Old Testament examples, ones that most of us in this room are probably very, very familiar with. So, albeit the Ten Plagues, the Ten Commandments, the Red Sea, the River Jordan, David and Goliath, Solomon's Wisdom, we were able to go into greater depth with some of these as opposed to others. But in every single one of these examples, God was at work to fulfill his purpose through his promise To bless all peoples. And so he was making himself known. The promise, again, as Todd said, went from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to the nation of Israel. Israel was blessed to be a blessing. And so God was working in and through Israel to reveal himself, right? Not just to the Israelites, but he was making himself known to Egyptians. He was making himself known to Canaanites, to Moabites, to Philistines, and right on down the list over and over and over again. And so all of that brought us essentially up to the end of the Old Testament. And what's fascinating is that as we turn the page right from the Old Testament to the New, we find that there's, we're still on, on track. It's the same purpose. It's the same promise. God is gathering a people back to himself. And there were a number of things that we were able to gather from last week and some big takeaways. And one of those was the fact that the Old Testament demonstrates quite clearly that missions matters to God, right? Missions is not a New Testament idea. 
It's not some afterthought that we find over in Matthew 28, which we're going to talk about this evening. Um, But it's really grounded in the very first pages of Scripture, and it traces its way through the entire Old Testament. Another thing that we gathered from last week is that God blessed Israel over and over and over and over in the Old Testament. And I told you guys last week that I like to engage, and I'll be engaging you tonight. Okay, so what were some of the ways, just real quick, um, you can just say it out loud. What were some of the ways, and there were numerous ones, what were some of the ways that God blessed Israel in the Old Testament? Just say them out loud. Yeah, he gave them the promised land, right? Eventually he gives them the land, for sure. Other examples? What's that? He gave him his presence, right? Cloud by day, fire by night. That's pretty nice to have. Anybody ever lived in the desert before? Pretty hot during the day, so it's nice to have a what? Cloud, and what happens at night? It gets real cold. It's nice to have a place to warm your fire, like warm yourself by the fire. Okay, so cloud by day, fire by night. He gives him his presence, and not just his presence, right, in the cloud and in the fire, but what else? How else does God give them his presence? His word, right? He gives his, his presence through his word. How else does he bless them? He frees them from slavery. He redeems them, right? Out from under the hand of Pharaoh. Do they deserve it? <laughs> no, not at all, right? They're complaining to get out of Egypt. They're complaining to go back into Egypt. They can't figure out what they want, Right? They won't trust God. They don't know whether they're going to get a cup of water or not. And God's just split the Red Sea, swallowed Pharaoh's army. And one of the things that we pointed out is, is we look at Israel, right? Oftentimes we say, oh, silly Israel, when in fact we might be saying or should be saying what? <laughs> oh, silly us, right? We're no different than, from them. We're cut from the same cloth. So he, right, he gives them his presence. He gives them his word. He gives them the cloud by day, the fire by night. What else does he do? He gives them redemption, okay? Give me some other examples. Good. Yeah, he gives them the prophets, right? Prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet. And what do the prophets come and do? Right? They they basically hold up the law. They're like prosecutors. They hold up God's law and they say to Israel, here's what you've done. You've broken God's law. Turn from your sins and trust in God, right? They preach the gospel. Repent. And if you repent, God will what? God will forgive you. Right? So there's judgment and restoration in in the prophets coming. And over and over and over and over. And what do they do? (laughs) What do they do when the prophets are sent? Ignore them. They refuse to listen. And not only do they refuse to listen, what else do they do with the prophets? They kill them. Get in line, Jesus says. Get in line. Right? They refuse to hear. Seeing they didn't see, hearing they didn't hear. Why? Because of their hard hearts. Stubborn, deaf, they had become the very things that they worshipped. Right? And so how else did God bless them? These are great examples, by the way. Give me some other ones. The prophets. What else does he bless them with? Judges. Gives them judges. He gives them priests. Which, by the way, like, what's a simple way to know the difference between a prophet and a priest? This is a kind of a blanket statement, but the prophet is speaking on behalf of God to the people. The priest is, the priest is speaking on behalf of the people to who? To God. Okay, so both. He gives them the law. He gives them the temple. He gives them the tabernacle. He feeds them in the desert for 40 years. 
gives them manna from heaven. When does the manna stop? On the very day that they step into where? The promised land. He takes care of them. He provides for them. He is patient and long-suffering, gracious and merciful with them. And so over and over and over and over, one of the things that we learned from last week is that God blesses the Israelites. And what do the Israelites do with all their blessings? They fall more in love with the gift than the giver. They fall more in love with the creation than the creator. They fall more in love, right, with the blessings over the blesser. And what does Paul call that in the New Testament? Idolatry. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul is writing to a Gentile church in Corinth. And in chapter 10, verses 6 and 11, he makes explicitly plain that the Old Testament was written down for our instruction so that we, right, we will not make the exact same mistake that Israel made. He says it twice because he wants to be explicitly clear because he knows that we are prone to the exact same thing, prone to wonder, prone to right, leave the God that we love. We forget God. This is one of Israel's sins. They forgot the Lord their God. They forgot the Lord their God, and they got fat on all their blessings and said, God, no thanks. When we run out of blessings, when things get tight, we'll be sure to cry out to you. And so what happens is, man, we know that, God, that missions matters to God from the Old Testament, we know that Israel's failure because of their idolatry is something that Paul gives us a stern warning towards in the New Testament. And then in addition to that, we notice that there was this pattern in the way in which God gathers a people to himself, right? What does God want in Genesis chapter 1? A planet full of people who know him and who worship him. But sin enters the picture and there is this pattern that rolls itself out. God works with one man and we go from one man to one family. We go from one family to one people. He does it with Adam and Adam's family, and humanity, and then we go from Adam to who was next in line? Noah. He repeats the commandment to Noah. One man, one family, one people. Sin spreads all over the planet. We get to the Tower of Babel. He scatters them, and then we go to Abraham. And what's the pattern? One man, one what? One family, one people. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Matthew chapter 1. Open up to Matthew chapter 1. And what you'll notice, okay, when we get to Matthew chapter 1, as I said earlier, nothing changes, right? Same purpose, same promise, God is gathering a people to himself. So following that pattern, one man, one family, one people, what would you expect to see when we turn, right, this white page right here from the Old Testament to the New Testament? As we walk through the New Testament, what might you expect to see? One man, one family, one what? One people. In fact, if you guys want, you could hold up this white page in your Bible like this for those of you who have it. Some of you guys have it. Some of you guys aren't, you don't want to hold it up. You can just tear it out if you want. Okay. <laughs> actually, I was teaching in North Carolina a few weeks ago, and there was a girl in the audience that actually did it. I was like, oh, well, um, okay. <clears throat> we can talk about that afterwards. <laughs> Um, I didn't plan on her doing it, but um, yeah, this white page, roughly how many years does this white page represent? 400, right? About 400 years between the Old Testament and the New. And as you turn the page from the Old Testament to the New, same story, same purpose, same promise, all peoples. And Matthew will not let us escape this. If you look down at uh, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, how does he begin? Notice we don't get past the first verse, first paragraph, first page, first chapter of the first book of the New Testament. And Matthew says this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of who? Abraham. 
Immediately, when you turn the page from the Old Testament to the New, Matthew is driving us back, not just to David, okay, but past David, back to who? Abraham. And knowing what we know from last week, which is a lot about Abraham, what are we aware of? That God had promised that he would be a blessing to all peoples. And what was the ultimate blessing? Who was the ultimate blessing? It was Christ himself who would come from Abraham's seed, right? Who would come from Abraham's flesh and he would step onto the scene, fully God and fully man, live the life we couldn't live and die the death we deserve to die. He would be buried and three days later he would rise from the dead and then God would extend an invitation and a promise to all who would turn from their sins and trust in him. And as such, for those who would turn and trust, God says, I'll forgive you of your sins and wipe your slate clean. And so this is what's amazing. What's amazing is you don't get past the first verse of the New Testament. The first verse. And where are we back to? Genesis 12. Right? Matthew wants to be explicitly clear. And by the way, I think Brad mentioned this maybe, uh, was it Sunday? That Matthew is writing, right, primarily to a Jewish audience. And maybe it wasn't Brad who said it. I can't remember. Sorry. Um, but Matthew's writing primarily to a J- Jewish audience, and so the Jews would have known the Abrahamic promise. But what had happened? In them taking all of their blessings and turning to idolatry, right? they had forgot that the blessings were coming to them because they were on their way to someone else. They thought that it was all about them. They thought it was all about them as a people. They thought it was all about the kingdom and them being in the kingdom, and they totally missed it. And so when Jesus steps onto the scene, Matthew takes us back to Abraham tying us back to the Abrahamic covenant. And then we go on to see that even past Jesus's genealogy, if you look over in Luke chapter two, we see it in Jesus's baby dedication. So God is still at work to fulfill his purpose through his promise in the genealogy of Jesus. He's doing it in the baby dedication of Jesus. And then eventually Jesus is gonna grow up. And at around the age 30, he's gonna start his public ministry. And we watch how Israel fails in the Old Testament. And so where Israel fails, literally, this is just not a catchy phrase, where Israel fails, Christ is going to prevail. He is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. Paul tells us all of God's promises find their yes in Christ. And so he is, right, the fulfillment of Israel's failure when he steps onto the scene, living out the law perfectly. And as he begins his public ministry, it's amazing, okay? And here's what's amazing about Jesus' public ministry. If you take a look at this, and you were to read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what you'll notice is that a significant number of Jesus' interactions are actually with non-Jewish people. Now, don't get me wrong, okay? Jesus came to his own, but John chapter 1 tells us that his own received him not, right? Right? Jesus comes to his own Jewish countrymen, but to all who received him, who believed in his name, those he gave the right to become children of God. The Jews thought they got into the kingdom because of what? They kept the law and Abraham was their daddy. And John makes it clear. No, 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 no. Those who are the children of God are those who put their faith and trust in Christ. That's who gets the right to be called children of God. And so Jesus comes to his own. In fact, God is demonstrating yet again his patience, his mercy, and his long-suffering right with the people of Israel. But they refuse Jesus. They reject him. And so Jesus launches his ministry, Matthew chapter 4, I believe it's verse 16 through about 19. Jesus launches his ministry in Galilee, 
right? Galilee among the Gentiles. And so there's all of these examples where we watch. For example, Jesus feeding the 4,000 Gentiles in Mark chapter 8. That's different than when Jesus feeds the 5,000. The 5,000 were predominantly Jewish. They were on the northwest, excuse me, the north, yeah, the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. The 4,000 were on the southeast corner in this area called the Decapolis, which was 10 Roman cities. And in between the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000, Jesus has the bread of life discourse. And he calls himself the bread of life, which is Jesus' way of saying what? There's enough bread to go around for who? Everybody. Jews and who? Gentiles. And in both accounts, we're told that they were satisfied after they finished. And so Jesus' ministry is not primarily and only to Jews. Okay, That is a theology that is incredibly predominant today among evangelicals, right? That Jesus went just to the house of Israel. That is not the case. Repeatedly, He's working with Gentiles and examples like the feeding of the 4,000 or take, for example, Romans chapter 8 where he engages with the Roman centurion. Jesus says, I haven't found greater faith than all of Israel besides this guy right here. <clears throat> the very guy that was oppressing them, the guy that had taken over and occupied the land at the time, Israel's very enemy is the person that Jesus is extending himself to. Prior to that, he had just told them in the Sermon on the Mount that they should love their enemies and then what's he doing in Matthew 8? Chose them. This is what it looks like. And so he's engaging with Romans. He's engaging with Gentiles when he feeds them, the healing of the Canaanite's daughter. <clears throat> or take, for example, right, the Samaritan woman at the well. Who's heard of that story before? Three of us? Good. Okay. Just kidding. <clears throat> How about the Samaritan woman at the well? Right? When Jesus intentionally walks these guys into the area of Samaria, and even when John, right, when John frames the narrative in his gospel, he does it with intentionality. What do I mean? Well, here's what I mean. In John chapter 3, okay, the, the, the narrative of the Samaritan woman comes in a series of stories. And in John chapter 3, verses 1 through 21, Jesus is doing ministry with Nicodemus. It's very likely that he would have been in Jerusalem because that was where the highest population of Pharisees lived and did ministry and were at the temple. But then we move, right, from Jesus doing ministry in Jerusalem, if we keep pressing on, we'll notice in uh, verse 22 to 4, 3, Jesus takes the disciples and marches them out into the Judean countryside. And then we move from the Judean countryside to the account that I just mentioned, with the Samaritan woman, where for 45 verses, Jesus engages with the Samaritan woman and breaks all the cultural rules in the book that you can imagine. And then when you come to the end of John chapter 4, Jesus doesn't stop there, but he ends up doing ministry with an official's son. Now, what do all these have to tell us? Well, if you look at all the highlighted words, Jesus does ministry in Jerusalem, Jesus does ministry in Judea, Jesus does ministry in Samaria, and Jesus does ministry with people from where? The ends of the earth. John chapter 3 and John chapter 4 are a nice little pictorial of Acts what? 1-8. Before he ever tells these guys to go be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, he has been taking them with him for three years, showing them this is what it looks like. When I leave, you've got a picture of how this looks and how this is to work. 
And so Jesus is not, listen, Jesus is not only a blessing to the nations in his crucifixion and resurrection. He's a blessing to the nations in his very life and ministry as he models to the disciples what Genesis 12, 1 through 3 looks like. And why did he have to model to these guys what it looked like? Because century after century after century after century, they had mistaken, right? They had been mistaken about the fact that the blessings were just for them. And Jesus is trying to show them, no, it's far more than that. And it's not just these examples. I mean, if we went through the the rest of the Gospels, here's eight more. Who is it that's confessing that Jesus is the Son of God in Mark chapter 15? A Roman centurion. Who should have been confessing that Jesus was the Son of God by the time you get to the end of Mark's Gospel? The Jews, right? The Jews should have been like confessing him as the Son of God, and instead, it's a Roman centurion of all people. Or how about the fact that Jesus describes the kingdom as a kingdom full of fish of many kind? When he sends them out and says, right, follow me, I will make you fishers of men. Who likes to fish in here? Yes, me too. And I'm looking to go very soon, okay? If anybody ever wants to go trout fishing with me, I'd love to take you, all right? It's one of my favorite things to do. When Jesus tells these guys, I'm going to make you fishers of men, and then he tells them in Matthew 13 that the kingdom will be full of fish of every kind, what's he saying? Hey, you're not just going to be fishing for one kind of fish. You're not just going to be trout fishing. You're not going to be bass fishing. You're going to be doing fishing of all kinds. Trout, bass, striper, largemouth, smallmouth, tuna, whatever. Because the kingdom is going to be full of people who aren't just Jewish, but they will be Jews and what? Gentiles. And why do we know that they will be Jews and Gentiles? Because God promised it would be so in Genesis chapter 12. And so you turn the page from the Old Testament to the New, and God is still at work to fulfill his purpose and his promise in the genealogy of Jesus. He's doing it in the dedication of Jesus when Simeon dedicates him at the temple, and then he grows up and he starts his public ministry. And for three years, we watch him engage the nations and bring his disciples with him so that they can see it. In fact, Mark chapter 3, verse 14 When Jesus appoints the disciples, he appoints them for two reasons, to be with him and to preach. And so they come with him and they get to see this and watch this over and over and over and over and over. And then by the time you get to the book of Acts, you would expect that they might have figured it out by then, right? You would think, okay, after three years of watching him, we've got it. But by the time you get to Acts chapter 15, they're still arguing over who gets into the kingdom and whether or not they have to be circumcised to get a seat at the table, which is a nice way of saying that we are slow to understand, right? Just like Israel missed it, man, the disciples were constantly missing it. If you read through the whole gospel of Mark, which Brad's preaching through right now, repeatedly, repeatedly, Mark tells us, They were slow to understand. They were slow to understand. They didn't understand. They were slow to understand. They thought the Messiah was going to be one thing. They thought the kingdom was going to be one thing. And Jesus unraveled all of their expectations. They thought he was coming to set up shop, right, to stomp the Romans. And that's not what he came to do, right? He came doing something else. He came preaching repentance and forgiveness of sins for the kingdom of God is at hand. And so 
All of that, right, all of that brings us to where I want to spend the remainder of our time this evening, which is really taking a look, taking a look um, at what we call the Great Commission texts. So after Jesus' death and resurrection, we know that after three years of doing ministry with these guys, eventually Jesus is going to march to the cross. After living a sinless, perfect life, he's crucified. We know that he's buried in the grave, and three days later, he rises from the dead. And after the resurrection, there is a period of time that Jesus is with the disciples. And not only with the disciples, but Paul tells us that he manifested himself up to 500 people. So the disciples plus another 500 bore witness to Christ, right, as resurrected. And it's during this period of time between the the post-resurrection and pre-ascension where Christ gives what we call the Great Commission text. And so it's extremely helpful because in Acts 1-3, let me set this up for you. Um, In Acts 1-3, Luke's going to tell us that he presented himself alive to them after suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during, and catch this, 40 days. For 40 days, Jesus makes himself known to the disciples And some of these 500 people. Now, you can imagine that during that 40-day period of time, Jesus probably said a lot. Can we agree upon that without stretching things too far? Okay, how much have you and I said in the last 40 days? Like, a lot. I mean, I can't even remember what I said yesterday. (laughs) Okay, let alone 10 days ago, let alone 30 days ago. But for 40 days, for a little over a month, Jesus makes himself known to the disciples and these 500. And for all of the things that we can suspect that Jesus said during those 40 days, the only thing that we have on record is what we call the Great Commission texts. That's it. 40 days he's with these guys, and the only thing that the Holy Spirit saw fit to have recorded in Scripture are five passages that we call the Great Commission. That's it. In fact, there are very few things that are mentioned in all four of the Gospels. If you read through all four of the Gospels, very few things are mentioned. One of the things that's mentioned is the feeding of the 5,000. Um, Jesus' crucifixion and his baptism are mentioned in right, all four of the Gospels, and then One of the other things that's mentioned in the four Gospels is this thing I keep referring to called the Great Commission texts. And so post-resurrection, pre-ascension, during that 40 days, if this is the only thing that the Holy Spirit saw fit to have recorded in Scripture, what does that tell us, you guys? It's extremely important. The Great Commission passages are the last words that we're aware of that Jesus spoke. The last words. Last words, okay, are not wasted words. In 2014, on May 8th, at 9.29 p.m., I watched my mother take her very last breath and enter into eternity. She was 62 years old. We were not expecting, though the Lord knew, I was not expecting that she would pass away at 62. I was thankful to be at her side when she went, but when I got a phone call from my aunt that my mom had had a stroke in the backyard, I was actually in Southern California pulling into my boss's driveway, 
And my aunt said, if you'd like to see your mother alive again, you should probably fly home immediately. And so I told my boss, um, we got a plane ticket, and Meredith and I got on an airplane and took a red-eye flight back to Missouri so that I could see my mom again before she passed away. And you better believe that on the plane flight home, I thought long and hard about what the last thing that I was going to say to her was going to be. I didn't want to be trite about that, right? I didn't want to be flippant about that. And so I thought long and hard. <clears throat> if my mom's coherent when she sees me, whenever I get home, what is it that I intend to say to her? Because last words are not wasted words, right? And in the same way, the last words that we have on record that Jesus gave us are these passages that we call the Great Commission. And so we're going to unpack them. Does that sound all right? All right, so let's spend some time um, unpacking these Great Commission passages. And so in order to do that, okay, in order to do that, let me set this up for you just a little bit. Now, I've already told you, okay, I've already told you based upon Acts 1-3, Luke's words, that there was a 40-day period of time post-resurrection, pre-ascension. So if you look up here at the little diagram, all the events surrounding the crucifixion and the resurrection happened in Jerusalem. All the events surrounding the ascension, which is indicated over here by the up arrow, happened just outside of Jerusalem in a place called Bethany, but for simplicity's sake, we're going to say Jerusalem. So all the events surrounding the crucifixion and the resurrection happened where, you guys? Jerusalem, and all the events surrounding the ascension happened where? In Beth, <laughs> Somebody in the back said, Bethany. Uh, yes, correct, but for simplicity's sake, we're going to say Jerusalem. So it's during this 40-day period that these Great Commission texts come to us. And the very first commissioning text actually comes to us in John 20, 21. And what we're told when, in this commissioning text, if you go read the, the passage, is that the, the, the commissioning happens actually in Jerusalem. Okay, so if you're looking up here, it's happening right over here in Jerusalem. And we're also aware of the fact that Thomas was not present. All the disciples are locked in a room. And why are they locked in a room? Because they're terrified for their lives. Who's breathing down their neck? Both the Romans and who? The Jewish religious leaders. And so these guys are terrified. They're locked, into, locked in a room. Thomas is not present and this is what we're told in John 20, 21. Essentially, Jesus just walks through a wall, which is pretty cool, and he says to them, peace, peace be with you. That's a pretty good word, by the way, when the Romans and the Jewish authorities are breathing down your neck. Peace be with you. And then he goes on to say this, as the Father has sent me, even so, I am sending you. As the Father has sent me, even so, I am sending you. If you read through the Gospel of John, 40 times Jesus is referred to as the sent one. 40 times. And on the 40th time, on that final occasion, the tables turn. And it goes from Jesus being the sent one to now who's being sent? The disciples, right? The disciples and ultimately that you right there, I'm sending you, is plural. It doesn't include just the disciples. It includes us, and as we'll find out in a minute, the church. Okay? So it's not just the disciples. In the immediate context it is, but in the greater context, it's the church. Forty times. This whole theme of being sent is a predominant theme in John's gospel. God sends John the Baptist. 
The Father then sends the Son. The Father and the Son then send the Spirit. And so the idea of sending is a major theme in John's Gospel. So by the time you get to this last passage here, where the tables turn from Jesus to us, if you've been reading through the whole Gospel, you're going, man, this is a predominant theme. This is obvious, right? We should expect to see what's coming when we get to the end. The whole Trinity is involved in the work of sending. And seeing that this seminar is called Called and Sent, it makes sense that we should spend a little bit of time talking about it. Um, I would go on to even say this, you guys, that the church, right, the church is, is not merely the gospel made visible. Okay, that's something that we're accustomed to saying around here, that the church is the gospel made visible. That's certainly true. But the church is also the Trinity made visible. Because the Trinity is involved in the work of sending. The concept of sending arises out of the Trinity. First, before it arises, right, with the church and with God's people. And that's why I pointed that out, that the Father sends the Son, right? The Father and the Son send the Spirit. The Spirit comes and indwells us. And then what we find, and we're going to tap into this next week, is that as the Spirit indwells us and unites us to Christ, not just as individuals, but as a corporate body, it is the local church in Acts chapter 13 that what? Sins. And all of that is arising out of the soil of who God is as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so sending is a predominant theme in John's gospel. Now, we should be asking a couple questions. When Jesus says, as the Father sent me, even so I am sending you, um, what exactly does that mean? What does it mean to be sent like the Son? Does it mean that we're sent to atone for sins? You guys are like picking up your rocks, getting ready to stone me. <laughs> okay? No, we're not sent to atone for sins. Only Christ did that and has done that. So if it doesn't mean that we're sent to atone for sins, then what on earth does it mean? Right, We read it, and sometimes we read it, and we just roll right on past it. Yeah, we're sent, but okay, what exactly does that involve? And specifically, what does it mean to be sent like Christ? Well, it can mean a number of things, but here's what it certainly means in the context of John's gospel. We can expect, as we are sent through the local church, that two things are going to happen. We're going to be sent to suffer, and we're going to be sent to serve. John has pointed that out in John chapter 13 when he washes the disciples' feet. He says, a servant is not above his what? Master. If I serve you, you can expect to what? Serve others. And not only can we expect to serve as we are sent, but we can also expect to suffer. In John chapter 15, he said, they hated me, and if they hate me, they'll hate who? You. And if you are sent in my name, which we are as Christians, then we can expect that we will suffer and we can expect no less that we will serve. We know that this is promised in the New Testament in a number of places. Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, Paul says, right, we are filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. That does not mean that we are adding to the atonement. What does it mean? That we are a physical representation of, Right, as we live out the gospel incarnately in front of people among every tongue, tribe, and nation. They get to see, right, who Christ is and what Christ's like. And as more people come into the kingdom, they're gathered into a local church, then the gospel is made visible in that new cultural context. 
Not only do we see it in Colossians 1.24, but in Philippians 1.29, Paul says it's been granted to you, right? Salvation has been granted to you, and not only salvation, but it's been granted to you that you'll suffer. Just like salvation is a gift, Paul describes suffering as a gift. How often do we think of it like that? Right, that suffering is a gift. Notice as well, right? Notice as well that this commissioning text is very concise and just like Genesis 12, 1 through 3, these guys are not told where they are going. They are not told how long they will be there. They are not told why they are going, and they are not told what they are supposed to say. All John tells us is that Jesus makes explicitly clear that they are to be what? They are to be sent. And so the first commissioning text comes in John 20, 21, and the second commissioning text actually comes in Mark 16, 15. In Mark 16, 15. And what do we learn from this particular commissioning text? Well, we also know that it's in Jerusalem. And we know that it's eight days later after John 20, 21. And the reason we know that's because John tells us and he tips us off to the fact that Thomas is present. So Thomas is absent in the commissioning in John 20, 21. But then we are told that he is present in this particular text. Now, I'm aware of the fact that Mark 16, 15 is not in the original manuscripts, and I'm thinking that Brad's probably going to address this as we preach through the gospel of Mark, Mark as he walks us through. But I will say this, whether you believe that the text was in the original manuscripts or not, I think that it is worth us addressing because there are some things that Mark point out that are very helpful. And so in John 20, 21, Jesus is modeling for us what it looks like to suffer and serve. And in Mark 16, 15, he's going to give us the magnitude of the mission. And here's what he tells these guys in Mark 16, 15. He said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Pretty simple, pretty straightforward. Go into all the world If you guys translate that word all in the Greek, you guys know what it translates out to? All. Some of you guys are like, that was a good joke. (laughs) Okay, all means what? All. Okay. Go into into all the world and notice what John says. What are you supposed to do when you go into all the world? Preach. Specifically, he says they are to proclaim. Now, I wonder, <clears throat> I wonder if the text might have been included because this is actually how Mark's gospel starts. In Mark chapter 1, verse 14, what are we told? That Jesus came proclaiming the kingdom of God. And how does Mark end if we choose to keep this extra material at the end? That the disciples are now to go what? Proclaim. Jesus comes proclaiming. These guys are to go proclaiming. They are to proclaim. They're to preach, right? They're to speak. They're to declare. They're to teach. They're to talk. They're to reason. And so the message, right? There's a message here. And why is this so significant? that Mark points out that the gospel is to be proclaimed? Because we're in the war of words. We're in a war of words. What do I mean whenever I say that we're in a war of words? Paul says that our battle is not with flesh and blood, but it's with who? 
Somebody finish it for me. You know? Principalities, right? Our war is not, right, the war that we think or that we're inclined to think or even that the Israelites were inclined to think. Our war is a war of words. It was words that got us cut off from God. Where at? In the garden. When Satan came and how did he tempt Adam and Eve? With a question. And what was the question? Did God really say? He's questioning God's word. And in the same way that our relationship with God was severed, right? Through words. Our relationship with God will be restored through the word. It's through Christ, right? Through his life, death, and resurrection. And by us putting our faith and trust in him that we are then united to him in both his death and his resurrection. As Paul says over in Romans chapter 6, verse 5. And so... We are in the middle of a war of words. The kingdom advances not with this sword, okay, but with what? This sword, the word of God, right? Which Paul picks up on whenever he talks about this language over in Ephesians, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. This is why he tells Peter to put his sword, what? (laughs) Away, because here we are at the end of Jesus's ministry and Peter still misunderstands things. By the way, I can't wait to get to heaven because i got a lot of questions for him. (laughs) Okay, a whole lot of questions for him. It's a war of words. The commissioning, here's the point, the commissioning involves communication. It involves speaking. It's linguistic in nature, right? And this is why fluency is so important when we get ready to take the gospel overseas, If we can't speak the language, we can't carry out the work that we've been sent there to do. And so this is why it's so critical that we take fluency seriously. That we make sure that we're meeting benchmarks of proficiency so that when we preach the gospel, the gospel is clear. That when we proclaim it, what's Paul pray? Pray, right, that I would be able to proclaim the gospel and speak the gospel with clarity he wants to be certain that he gets it right and that they understand it and so as we proclaim it is crucial it's paramount that we take fluency and that we take linguistics seriously brooks is going to talk more about this um, april 27th so the second to the last week Uh, some of you guys have noticed that in the budget proposal that just got passed, we carved out some money for this organization called Radius. Raise your hand if you know what I'm talking about so I don't sound crazy. Um, the executive director of the organization is going to come in and do um, our, our talk time during April 27th, and he's going to touch on this, and he's going to talk about why linguistics and proficiency are so important. And I just merely want to use Mark 6.15 to point out to us that that's the nature of our work. It's speaking. It's speaking. And if I can't speak, I can't do what I'm there to accomplish. I'd go a step further to tell you guys that after spending 13 years in the evangelical missions world, um, this is something that evangelical missions often pays lip service to. Okay, We don't want to take time to learn the language because it's too long. We don't think it's necessary. It doesn't produce results as fast as we'd like. It's not pragmatic. But it's crucial that we learn the language if we intend to actually preach the gospel to them. And so we find one of our commissioning texts in John 20, 21. We find our second commissioning text in Mark 16, 15. And this next one, 
I'm going to have to set up a little bit so that we can make sense out of where it falls on this 40-day timeline. So we're going to have a little geography lesson. This little blob right here represents the Sea of Galilee, and out of the Sea of Galilee flows what famous river? Can somebody tell me? The Jordan, okay? And the Jordan River flows into another famous sea, the Dead Sea, okay? Good. Maps are in the back of the Bible for a reason. They help us. They give us a lot of context. They give us a lot of clues. Now, most of Jesus' ministry was just west of the Sea of Galilee in a region called Galilee, and he did most of his ministry in a particular city called Capernaum. And so this is where Jesus spent most of his time. Now, south of Galilee and west of the Dead Sea was Jerusalem. And we find Jesus in Jerusalem, as I've already pointed out in John chapter 3, when he does ministry with Nicodemus. And so Jesus is back and forth between these two areas right here, Jerusalem and Galilee. And if you were to walk, you'll notice there on the screen we're taking a little walk, little virtual walk from Galilee to Jerusalem. If you were to take a walk from Galilee to Jerusalem, it would take you a minimum of about 8 to 10 days, depending on how fast you walked. It could take up to two, two and a half weeks if you were slow poking. Now, some of you are thinking, why do these details matter? Well, because when we come to our third commissioning passage, we find ourselves in Matthew 28. Okay, Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. Some of you guys are thinking, oh man, we finally arrived. (laughs) Missions, we're there. Matthew 28, (laughs) we've made it. No, we've been talking about it since last week, okay? But what do we learn from Matthew 28, 16 through 20? Would somebody be willing to read verse 16 to me? I don't care who. It would be helpful. Just read it out loud so we can all hear it. You might have to pull down your mask. Thank you, Ed. Okay, so Ed tells us that the disciples proceeded to a mountain in Galilee. Now look up here real quick. Everybody with me? Where are the disciples after the resurrection? All the events surrounding the crucifixion and the resurrection happened where? Jerusalem. So where are the disciples after the resurrection? They're down where? Here in Jerusalem. Ed, where does he tell them to go? To a mountain where? Galilee, up here. How long is it going to take him to get there? Eight to ten days at minimum. Could have been upwards of two, two and a half weeks. And so this third commissioning text is going to come several days after, maybe somewhere here on our 40-day timeline. This is the most detailed of the five Great Commission passages. And as Ed pointed out to us, he tells them not just to go to Galilee, but to go to a mountain in Galilee. And just like in John's gospel, sending is a dominant theme. One of the things that we pick up in Matthew's gospel is this thing with mountains, right? Like Matthew's really into mountains. From beginning to end, Matthew's gospel picks us, right, takes us to the tops of these mountains, Which examples am I talking about? Well, he begins the gospel with the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is tempted on the Mount. The transfiguration happens on the 
Mount, the Olivet Discourse happens on a mount, and then you find yourself in Matthew 28, and we are once again now at the very end of Matthew's Gospel on a mountain. What happens on mountains? Matthew does not want us to miss the significance of this. What's the context of mountains in the Old Testament? Okay, one of my seminary professors regularly says that on mountains, heaven comes to kiss earth. I'm like, well, okay. <laughs> what else do we know from the Old Testament that happens on mountains? God speaks. Thank you. God speaks on mountains. And the clearest example that we have of this is when Moses goes up to the mountain to get the law. And God speaks. And so here we find ourselves post-resurrection and Jesus has brought these guys to the mount. And if you're one of those guys, what are you thinking? We've been on mountains the whole time and there's some really important things that happen on mountains in the Old Testament. Oh, hey, James, you know what happens on mountains in the Old Testament? Yeah, Peter, I got it. Moses, <laughs> yeah, God spoke. The radiance of God burned brightly, so brightly that Moses comes down off the mountain and the Israelites can't even look at him, right? The very radiance of God is on the mountain. And where have we seen the radiance of God on the mountain before? At the transfiguration, where Jesus is declared, right, to be God's son with whom he's well pleased over at his baptism. And then when you get to the transfiguration, he says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. That little phrase, listen to him, if that's ringing in the disciples' ears, they would have been aware of what Moses had promised in Deuteronomy 18.15, that there would be a prophet that would come from among their own brothers, and Moses told the Israelites that to that prophet, they were supposed to do what? Listen. So when you get to the transfiguration, Peter, James, and John should have been crystal clear that this was the guy from Deuteronomy 18.15, and the Father has just declared him to be the one with whom he is well pleased, and now we are on a mountain post-resurrection. What's Matthew trying to tell us about who Christ is? He's trying to tell us that he's what? He's God. He is God. And when God speaks, what happens? What happens when God speaks? In Genesis chapter 1, we go from nothing to everything. Right? When Jesus speaks, waves and wind obey. Be still. And what do they do? They listen. And they obey. And so what does Jesus tell these guys? Well, he came to them and he said to them, All authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now let's just stop right there. You'll be tempted to keep reading, but come back here with me. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Translation, I'm God. Now this is not the first time, this is not the first time that Matthew in his gospel has introduced to us authority. If you go back to Matthew chapter 8 where Jesus interacts with the Roman centurion and you go back and you read that narrative and that story, what do we gather from Matthew chapter 8? Well, Jesus interacts with this Roman centurion, and the Roman centurion says, I got a servant that needs healed. And Jesus says, great, I'll come and do it. 
No hesitation. He agrees to the the deal. And what does the Roman centurion say? I don't even need you to show up. Just what? Just speak. Just say the words. And here's why I understand how this works. Because I too am a man of authority. And when I say to my servants, go, what do my servants do? They go, they listen, they obey, they hear my words, they recognize my authority, and they do what I say. Right? This is a Gentile Roman centurion. And he says, I get how authority works. I don't need you to show up. Just say the word and it'll happen. Which is another way that Matthew's tipping us off to the fact that this Roman centurion is aware of the fact that Jesus is divine and that his authority is unique. And who was with Jesus when this whole event transpired? The disciples, they were with him to listen to this Roman centurion speak of authority and to tell Jesus, hey, just say the word, which gets us back to Genesis chapter one, where God speaks and things come into existence as though they weren't. (laughs) And so you get to Matthew 28, 20 chapters later, and he says, all authority on heaven and earth belongs to me. These guys are looking at each other going, hey, we know how it works. Right, we, know how, we, we should know how it works. The Roman centurion understood how it works. We should certainly understand how it works. And so what does he say to him? All authority belongs to me. Go. What did the Roman centurion say? When I say, go, my servants, go. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you, or behold, I am with you always, to the very ends of the age. That little word go does not arise out of a vacuum. God's been saying it over the course of the entire Old Testament. Adam, fill the earth. Noah, fill the earth. Abraham, go. Isaac, go. Jacob, go. Moses, go to Pharaoh. Joshua, go over the Jordan. What's Saul Saul say to David when he gets ready to battle Goliath? Go, may the Lord be with you. Major prophets, minor prophets. Isaiah, go to these people. Jeremiah, go to these people. Ezekiel, go to these people. Go, go, go. Jesus comes, right? The Father sends him and he comes. And now here we are. Jesus is passing the baton to these guys. All authority belongs to me. And what are they to do? They're to make disciples. They're to make disciples of what? All nations. Two weeks from now, man, come back two weeks from now because Todd's going to tap into what Jesus means when he says all nations. It may not be what we assume to think it is. All nations. And what are they supposed to do to make disciples and how are they supposed to do it? Well, Jesus is explicitly clear. We've got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of books written on discipleship. Do we not? And Jesus keeps it very basic. You're to do two things. Teach and baptize, teach and baptize, teach and baptize, teach and baptize. And where the word is faithfully taught and the ordinances are faithfully administered, there we have a what? A church. Where does the teaching and the baptizing happen? In the context of what? A local church. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. And now I'm giving it to you. And who does the you include? Well, it certainly includes the disciples, once again, in this immediate context. But we know that that authority is derivative and is then passed on to the local church because Matthew 16 and Matthew 18 demonstrate to us 
that Jesus gives the keys of the kingdom to the local church. And so teaching and baptizing, teaching and baptizing, teaching and baptizing. That's how we make disciples, and we're to do it among all nations. If you're a disciple, this is nothing new to you. This is not some new idea that Jesus came up with to keep these guys busy after he ascends. All of these commissioning texts are arising, once again, out of the soil of Genesis 12, 1 through 3. God had promised Abraham to be a blessing to the nations. One man, one family, one what? One people. And what do we see happening as we walk through the New Testament? One man, one family, one people. Repeat, repeat, repeat. If you're a disciple, you're aware. This is nothing new to you. And you're also aware, if you're a disciple, that this is not a great suggestion. It's not if you're up for it. It's not if, you down, if you're interested in it. It's not if it fits your timeline. It's, it's not if it's the right age or the right stage, right? All authority belongs to him, and he's commanding us to go. Now, these last two commissioning texts we'll make very quick work of, not just because we're short on time, but because we don't need to spend a whole, whole lot of time talking about them. At this point, we've got three of the Great Commission texts. The fourth one comes in Luke 24, 47. This one also happens in Jerusalem. It's difficult to place exactly when it happened, but what we do know is where it happened because the context of Luke chapter 24 tells us that it happened in Jerusalem. And what do we gather from Luke 24 that we don't necessarily gather from the previous commissioning text? Well, this is what he tells these guys. Jesus said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer, and on the third day he should rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name, and here it comes again, to where? All nations. What is unique about Luke's commissioning text? Well, Luke gives us the content of the message the disciples are to proclaim. So John tells us they're to be sent, they're to be sent but he doesn't tell us what they're supposed to say. Mark tells us that they're supposed to proclaim it, right, the gospel, all over the world. But we don't get the contents of what the gospel is. Matthew tells us they're supposed to make disciples by teaching them and baptizing them all that Jesus has commanded. But then Luke gets very explicit and he gives us in this commissioning text the content of the gospel. And so what is the content of the gospel? Well, you'll notice he says right away, thus it is written. So what's the content of the gospel? That Jesus was promised in the Old Testament. Okay, Jesus was promised in the Old Testament that there would be a Savior, Genesis 3.15, Genesis 12.1-3. But then Luke goes on and he says that what would this Savior do? Well, he would what? Suffer and he would rise. Okay, He would be humiliated and he would be exalted. And so what's the content? That it was written in the Old Testament and that this specific Savior and this specific Messiah would be crucified and he would resurrect. And then he goes on and Luke tells us how is one to respond. What is our response to God's revelation in Christ? We are to repent, right? We're to repent and we are to believe. And then Luke ties it off telling us what is promised for those who turn from their sins and trust in Christ. They'll be forgiven of their sins. So what's the content of the gospel? That there was a promised Savior and Messiah 
who was promised in the Old Testament. And that when he came, he would be crucified, he would resurrect, and that as a result of his crucifixion and resurrection, as Paul says over in Acts 17, right, God appoints one man, and through that one man, he's bringing judgment, speaking of Christ. <clears throat> and so we are to turn from our sins and trust, and for those who do, they will be promised forgiveness. And what does Luke end with? Who's that gospel for? All who? All nations, all tribes, all tongues, all languages. Which brings us to our very last commissioning text. Acts 1.8. How do we know that it happens at the end of the timeline? Because we are told, right? We are told that after he gives this text, Christ ascends into the clouds. And what do we learn from Acts 1.8? but that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now we've already pointed out in John chapter 3 and 4 that they've got a picture of what this looks like and now they're getting to hear it. They've, been, they've, they've had a chance to, to catch it and now they're being taught it, right? You've probably heard the phrase, sometimes things are more easily caught than taught or sometimes more easily taught than caught. Jesus is working both angles here. And so he tells them, fellas, you can't do this on your own. What do we learn from this last commissioning text? The means by which they will fulfill the Great Commission is not in their own strength. It's not pull up your bootstraps and try harder. It's not work harder. It's through the power of the Spirit. And next week, when we walk into the book of Acts, what you're going to see is that these guys are empowered with the Spirit to do two things to preach the gospel, and to plant churches in the face of persecution. Page after page after page after page. They are filled with the Spirit. And so, the Great Commission texts, right, are not one passage in Matthew, but they are actually several passages. They come, right, in Matthew, um, in Matthew 28. They come in Mark 16, 15. They come in John 20, 21. They come in Luke 24, 47. And they come in Acts 1, 8. Now, why do you suppose, why do you suppose he gave them five commissioning texts? Hey, Alex, if you can hit the arrow and advance the slide one more time, it'd be super helpful. Why five? Why five commissioning texts in three different locations? These are the last words that we're aware of that Jesus spoke before he ascends. Jesus' last words were his first priority. These words have been given to the church, right? Why five times? Because we're not much different than who? Israel. And we're not much different than who? The disciples. We too, me too, can be slow to hear, right? We see through a glass dimly lit. We can be hard of seeing and hard of hearing. But the Great Commission has come to us because it's on its way to someone what? To someone else. So let me pray for us, okay? And we'll transition to the next part. Father, thank you for a chance just to walk through your word again tonight and to see missions is not merely a New Testament idea at the tail end of the Gospels, but that it is cover to cover. And so, Lord, I pray that we would submit ourselves to your authority, that we would hear and that we would see, and that you would grant us the faith, Lord, to obey. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.